You're listening to the Duck Territory Podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And if you're not a member to DuckTerritory.com, I highly suggest you guys jump in on it. We're currently offering a 50% off an annual membership. That promotion is going on right now with the return of spring football. For $53.70, you get your year's worth of inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, expert analysis and opinion. You get to read all the content on 24-7 sports. So not just Duck Territory, but everywhere else. Uh, and also on top of that, you get exclusive recruiting coverage, access to Duck Insiders, and more. So jump in on that while you can. Huge deagle, 50% off. Um, should be up on the site for a couple of days as spring football gets going. And, Eric, that's where we're going to start today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the men's basketball program, Peyton Pritchard's career coming to an end this weekend, just the significance of that, what's at stake for the Ducks on top of senior day. Uh, the women are in, in Las Vegas trying to play their way to another conference championship. And depending upon when you play this game, play this podcast, they will have played their first game in Vegas. Uh, we're recording it Friday morning. They play Friday afternoon. But we're going to start the podcast with football. It was the first day of spring football on Thursday, March 5th. Oregon was inside the Mashovsky Center. Cristobal said he really, it was a, Perfect day, honestly. I was really surprised that they were <laughs> yeah. inside. Uh, but Cristobal said the reasoning was because he wanted to make the guys uncomfortable, maybe crank the heat up a little bit more than what they're used to, and just kind of simulate some uncomfortable situations for his team on the first day out. And quite honestly, it's just it's just kind of cool having football back. Oh, 100%. I mean, 100%. I mean, like, like you said, I think uh, on Sunday when we recorded about spring practice, it's like, we're not actually seeing that much, but just the fact that we get to go watch for 40 minutes ends up being right. like, you end up leaving being like, wow, that was really interesting. Man, I learned so much. And then you kind of like take a second and take a step back and you go like, Oh, well, oh. maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't learn that much. But at the same time, I do think there are some notable things we're going to talk about on this podcast. But yeah, you're right. I think just having football back in your life and, and being able to go watch, go watch practice and kind of see who's made improvements, who's playing here, who's playing there. There's a number of players who've kind of moved around positionally and obviously a couple of guys who are, are banged up that we didn't expect players that are maybe a little higher on the depth chart than we had expected. So you just get all these little pieces, these little nuggets you learn over the course of the first week or so that are, are really interesting. And obviously Thursday was no different. If you haven't read, we've got our instant reactions. Matt posted some VIP thoughts up on the site. Those are definitely worth going and, and taking a look at because um, I, I think I, I, I say this, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty objective. I think we provide the best practice coverage out there for Oregon football. And I think this year has been no other. And, and I think you should go check out our stuff that we put up on Thursday. A lot of good content, um, including some of the stuff we're going to talk about right now. One of the big items of the overlaying theme of spring football isn't, I mean, obviously the quarterback battle is going to be the, the, the thing everyone's going to talk about. And it, 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 it's basically Tower Shuck versus the field, I think. To handicap that. Bradley Yaffe, uh, a walk-on quarterback, was the second string guy day one. And then Kale Millen and, and Jay Butterfield also took some reps when Shuck and Yaffe were not with the first or second team. Um, but I think something that's gone under-discussed, I guess, and I've mentioned it on the podcast before, we've talked about it, but it's the center spot of where guys fall in line at that position because Jake Hansen's gone, four-year starter. He was such a good player for Oregon, and, and who replaces him is 
kind of an up in the air deal. And we got some clarity on that from Crystal Ball because day one we show up to practice and we see Alex Forsyth, a junior at the, with the first team at center. We see a true freshman, Jonathan Dennis, with the second team at center. But Crystal Ball says that the true number one was not just available. He just wasn't available on, on, on Thursday for, for the practice because he was sick. Yeah, Ryan Walk, who, if you've been following the depth chart closely the last couple of years, he's a walk-on out of Sheldon High School. And we said this the other day. We think he's a walk-on who definitely was not recruited on scholarship. He might be somebody who's been given a scholarship. That'd be something we'll keep an eye on because there's a pretty strong possibility that we look up here and, and he's really continuing to push for the starting spot. Cristobal said he was sick on Thursday, but if he had been healthy, he would have been getting the first-team reps at center. That sort of tells you the type of player he is. And right. Maybe it is a three-player battle between Walk, Forsyth, and Dennis. We should mention Dawson Yarlmelo, another guy who I think we'd expected to get some opportunity there, uh, was not a full participant. He's still kind of working through some stuff. I think he's getting close. He might be another person that has a say in that center position battle. But for the day, uh, you certainly got a little bit better idea. I think Jonathan Dennis is a name I don't know if we really had considered as a center. But Chris Paul also said that they're going to have a lot of guys kind of circling through there at center and working on snapping and, and playing that position because – there's a ton of opportunity there, and there just hasn't been somebody who's clearly kind of run away with it, and, and they're going to continue to work through that. So I think Ryan Walk, if he ends up winning this job, that'll be a pretty interesting story in terms of this is a local kid that was kind of – I mean, he had a high school teammate in, in Cody Shearer, who was a recruited player from Oregon in that same cycle, um, and he ended up transferring, I believe, down to Arizona State. Uh, and, and now you have Walk, who obviously wasn't as quite, quite as highly regarded as his high school teammate, possibly in line for a starting position for a couple of years. That would be a pretty cool story if, if that does come together. Are you surprised at all that that Walk is the starter, though? Like, yeah, no, I am. I yeah, I'm, 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 like straight up, I thought, and, and and we should also say that like when when we watched it, and I, I you know, there's so many guys out there. It hadn't really registered in my head that Walk wasn't one of the guys available. I mean, uh, Patrick Pearson, who does communications for Oregon, said there were going to be about a handful of guys who are out with illness, and we didn't. He didn't give all the names, and I was thinking, okay, Forsyth and Dennis are the top two guys. That makes sense, and that was kind of where I was at. And then when Cristobal brought up the fact that he wasn't at practice, that Walk wasn't at practice, and the fact that if he had been, he would have been the first team guy. Uh, I was a little bit like, wow, okay, so this, so they're really, really going to give him a, an opportunity to do this because I think it had felt like for the last couple of years, sure, he was on the depth chart as a second center, but right. everybody knew it was Calvin Throckmorton who would come in, in in a situation which happened a couple of times, and Throckmorton was the guy. So yeah, I was, I'm a little surprised, sure. I think for me, it's, I'm, I was surprised. Um, now, was I like as shocked that a guy like Samuel Patasi was the first team? Left guard, was that the same level as Ryan Walk being the number one? No. Because like you said, that Ryan Walk had spent a majority of last season listed as the number two center, so it's not, it wasn't that big of a surprise. Now I guess the question then becomes, how long can Ryan Walk fend off an Alex Forsyth, uh, a Jonathan Dennis, a TJ Bass, and whoever else is at, whoever else is, is getting reps at center? Um, is this a, is, do you buy the fact that Ryan Walk is the, the prohibial number one, or do you think he eventually just gets overtaken? Uh, I don't, I don't expect necessarily, like, I'm not like going into this going like, there's 100% certainty he's not the starter. Um, but I am currently still feeling like I would probably bet the field against him. 
if I was given that opportunity. I, I just think between Forsyth, I think Dennis is somebody that we didn't quite know how they wanted to utilize him. If they want to utilize him at center, and he's equipped for that, he's certainly got the physical tools to be that. Forsyth is another player who's been kind of overlooked a little bit just because he hasn't had an opportunity to see the field. And, and I, I still believe, based upon what we've heard and what we've seen you know, in practice opportunity, that, that he's going to be a capable player at Oregon. So, yeah, I think ultimately I'm, I'm not going into this expecting Ryan Locke to be Oregon's starting center, but I'm also not going to be like totally stunned based upon the fact that for, I think, over – I mean, I, I know all of last season and I think most of even the 2018 season, he was on the two deep as, a, as the backup center. Yeah. So. It's not like he's a completely brand new name. I just think we kind of overlooked it because we went, okay, well, Throck Martin's really the backup, and he's kind of a backup just in title. Um, you know, and I think it's going to be a thing where if we get to the end of spring and Walk has been the first team center the whole time, I'll probably exit spring going, they've got their center, and it's sort of un- unexpected, but it's going to be a walk on. I, kind of where you are, I, I, I kind of think we might see him stay after spring football at the number one spot, or at least rotating it. It might be a rotation. Yeah. Um, other interesting notes is that the Ducks are experimenting with Thomas Graham's position and kind of where he fits within the defense, and that's notable because he showed up in 2017 as a true freshman and started and hasn't come out of the starting lineup since. So this is – Oregon experimenting with a guy that's got three years of starting experience and is slated to go into his fourth year at Oregon as a starter. And that's just rarefied air to find guys that are four-year starters. I know we, we saw half the starting lineup offensively do that last season, but I don't know if people just really understand how rare that is for a guy to show up and start four years in a row. Um, but that's kind of what Thomas Graham came back for and, and to become a, you know, a better player and, and to – have a chance at a bigger role, and it sounds like there's some experimentation going around with Thomas Graham at the at the safety position away from cornerback. Yeah, it was probably you know we we knew there'd be some position change. In fact, we were alerted right before practice that DJ Johnson and we knew about this before he'd be moving to tight end, and that Andrew Follow, Austin's younger brother, would be moving to outside linebacker. So we wanted to, into practice knowing these things, but. Through the course of the 40 minutes we had inside, we, it became pretty clear that Thomas Graham wasn't working with the cornerbacks group. He was working with the safeties and the nickels, and he was when they ran through, and they did this really quickly, when they ran through their first and, and second team defenses, he was with the second team working at either safety or nickel. It's kind of hard to tell because they ran through so quickly, but it looked like it was nickel to me. I think Rob Mosley reported safety, so uh, maybe he had a better indication of that. But regardless, he was not working at cornerback, and I think that's interesting um, I pressed Cristobal a little bit afterwards about like kind of what their plan is, and, and they are, he said, kind of experimenting with some stuff. They're basically in an effort to t- try out some different combinations, in part because they're working on different packages. And, you know, Oregon is going to face a variety of different offenses in the Pac-12. You know, he, he mentioned the fact that you have air raid teams, you have new, you have 21 personnel teams, you have some new offenses with some new head coaches that, that might change what they're doing offensively. But, you know, he did say kind of when push comes to shove, he said he can play anything. This is what he says of Graham. But he's our corner. The other stuff is stuff that we're looking at and experimenting with to see if it fits for other packages. So I think long-term, the indication, at least right now, is that they feel pretty good about Graham being one of the corners, but that they just want to see if he can try a different pos- couple positions out. And I think a lot of this has to do with, like, hey, you have a guy like Mikhail Wright, who is a t- top-tier talent. He's going to be a very, very good football player. He already is a very good football player. And they're just trying to find ways to get him on the field. And he was the first-team cornerback in Graham's place when they ran through that along with Yamadi Lenore on the other side. So 
I think they're just trying to see what they, you know, kind of mix and match and see what works. And I wouldn't be stunned at all if on Saturday and, and into next week on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday when they practice again, if we see either Graham in different spots or maybe we see Lenore move around. Maybe we see Mikhail Wright move and play a little nickel. I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see this being something where the secondary reshuffles uh, every couple practices and, and we see people experimenting at different positions because it sounds like that's something they're trying to look. Because, frankly, they have almost too much talent right now uh, to get everybody on the field at once. The reality is I think Thomas Graham, when they play North Dakota State to open the season, will be starting a cornerback. I mean, I, spring is the time where you try this type of stuff. And maybe you survive and, and maybe Thomas Graham – is a superstar at the safety position, but I, I when it's opening game, uh, opening week of the of the 2020 football season, I fully expect Thomas Graham to be starting somewhere on the defense. And if he's not, I'll be shocked. And if he's not, then that means someone has elevated to a really high level because Thomas Graham is a very talented football player and has been for the Ducks the last three seasons and will be again in 2020. Um, we should note that there's also some injury news, some some illness, and no, not that illness. Um, that <laughs> the coronavirus, we were told, that's not out there with this team. Just guys are are sick right now. You know, typically in locker rooms, this happens. You know, someone gets sick and it kind of spreads a little bit. And a couple guys missed practice. I think Christian Williams was one who was not at practice. Ryan Walk was was one of them who was not at practice. Um, I, I think. Was it DJ Hill who was not at practice? Uh, Jamal Hill and Brandon. Jamal Dorless. Hill. Yeah. Those, Jamal those, Hill and Brandon Dorless. Sorry. And, and um, those, those guys were not yeah. at practice. So there, there were a couple guys that weren't there. There were a couple guys that weren't expected that showed up ready to go and clear to, to, to practice day one. Now the, there is a couple guys out there that are dealing with injuries. Um, coming back, Kale Millen had that shoulder injury that he suffered during the season that shut his season down, redshirted. He's back. He's out on the field. Looks to be fine. We also saw tight end Cam McCormick out there. Now, they weren't in full pads, so we don't have a full indication yet if he's fully cleared. But from when we were there, Cam McCormick at a tight end was doing everything that every other tight end was doing. And I think that's that's a pretty big deal for, for the tight end position and also a pretty big deal for, for Cam McCormick himself. Totally, and and that position group is completely in flux right now. I really don't have a, a real clear idea of how that's going to play out. We should we should note that McCormick, based upon what we saw at least when they ran through the first and second team offense, he was not one of the, the tight ends there, and so maybe he's got some work to go. Hunter Cantwell worked with the first team, Spencer Webb with uh, the second team. Again, those depth charts can be found on our instant reactions and takeaways from practice on the website, and I think it's worth taking a look at least at the 2D because some kind of interesting stuff there both on offense and on defense, but... But, yeah, no, it, it is going to be really interesting to see uh, how that all plays out. And, yeah, I think it's great to see McCormick back. And, and you, this is what we were hoping to see. And, and he did look like he was moving really, really comfortably through drills. And, and we're hopeful. I think you have to be hopeful that he's somebody who's available because he could be a game changer at that position. There's there's not a whole lot of experience right now at tight end. In fact, they moved DJ Johnson over. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, Patrick Herbert's put on about 15, 20 pounds of weight. He looked big. Spencer Webb's put on some weight. I think Hunter Kampmar's lost like 40 pounds since he moved positions from defensive line over to tight end. So there, there's been a lot of kind of jockeying in terms of body types. That kind of, honestly, the bodies are all pretty similar in terms of they're all like 6'5", 250. That's pretty, you know, across the board, they're all kind of that same type of body type right, right. now. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But you're right. I think the Cormac coming back is significant and it's going to be fun to see 
and interesting to see how he kind of rounds into form and how that might change what this offense can do uh, because he could be a, a difference maker. There's no doubt about it. There's also an injury to Noah Sewell, Oregon's freshman five-star enrollee who's early. Uh, he was a member of the 2020 recruiting class and then participated. He enrolled at Oregon and then a week later went to Hawaii for the Polynesian Bowl. And at that game, he suffered a small injury during the game itself. Um, he was out on the on the field. He was dressed. He was not in cleats. He had just regular shoes on, which is a clear indicator of he's with the rehab group. And Cristobal didn't seem too overly concerned, but at the same time, they're being completely cautious with when they bring him back. Yeah, I think we learned two pieces of information um, based upon what Cristobal said. A, he does not expect Sewell to be practicing full go, or he's kind of eyeing a full go participation from Sewell um, for the for when they return in about, I guess, two weeks from the end of this first session, which ends on Saturday. On March 31st is when you can kind of expect to see him full go. So you're going to have potentially the first time he's full go is going to potentially be Justin Flo's first practice as well. So that'll be kind of one of those things where we come back on March 31st and it's like, oh boy, here we go. Here are these two inside linebackers that everyone is so excited about. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, I, I just kind of, I guess I gave it away, but no, Sewell, according to Crystal, is a full-time inside linebacker. We'd kind of been questioning, hey, is he going to play with a hand down? Is he playing outside? Is he playing inside? Now it seems pretty clear. Um, that he is an inside linebacker. He's listed on the roster there as well as a six foot three, two hundred and sixty pound inside linebacker, number one jersey. Um, that's kind of your Noah Sewell update. Um, he one thing that you know I think Kevin Wade posted this on on the on the site, and something that I noticed as well watching it is that he was really making an effort to even though he couldn't fully go through the reps to kind of take mental Do reps. He was doing the footwork when they were, you know, when the when they had to break down and, and get into a position to defend a, a, a pass catcher. He was getting, he was kind of working on that footwork, even off to the side of kind of like how you would do that. So that was cool to see, and that kind of explains why he's such a highly regarded re- recruit and prospect because obviously he's somebody that, uh, that that will be kind of not taking this too lightly, even though it's maybe an opportunity for him to to, to watch rather than take part in practice. Oregon will have a practice Saturday. Uh, in Eugene, the second one, and then next week they'll have three practices, the last one being a Saturday practice, uh, March 14th, which will be up in Hillsboro. Uh, opportunity for the, f- the folks up in the Portland area to check out the Ducks. And on top of that, it's not only just a practice, but it's full access. You know, everyone gets to go and watch the entire practice for that. I know, Eric, you're probably fired up to, to watch that one just because – uh, we'll get a r- real clear indicator of where guys kind of sit in terms of depth and w- who's working at what position and, and who factors in in new spots. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, th- those are my favorite days because we only get to see so much, and frankly, the opportunity to see the defense, which is primarily where I watch, and if, if you are unfamiliar, Matt is typically kind of keeping an eye on the offense. I watch the defense. Um, it's hard to watch sometimes and kind of understand exactly the nuance of who's playing where and, and what the hierarchy looks like until we see a full practice. So that, that'll be a really good indication. And I think we'll, I kind of like that that ends spring or the, the first part of spring. I think that makes a lot of sense to kind of end it with a scrimmage or an open practice up in Portland, kind of give an opportunity to sort of show right. off what progress you've made. Um, it feels like a nice ending point before you then take a couple of weeks off and, and then reconvene for, for 10 more with obviously the final practice being the, uh, the spring game on April 18th. So, That'll be a big event. I know uh, Matt, unfortunately, will be in Vegas, so he will not be there for that, but we'll have the rest of the team up in uh, up at Hillsborough Stadium checking in on that, and we'll have full coverage of that event if you're in the area. Um, it is a first-come, first-serve kind of situation. I think 
Last year they had a little over 2,000 uh, people attended, and I think capacity at Hillsborough Stadium is over 7,000, but there's only about 3,000 covered seats based upon what I've read. So um, it might be a thing where you, there might be some competition to go out and check it out, but if you're an Oregon football fan and, and you want to see this team and you live in the Portland area, or even if you live in the Eugene area or, or somewhere else, I think it's worth heading up and, and checking that out because that's going to be kind of your first glimpse at this 2020 roster. Let's take a quick break. We come back and we're going to talk more about why I'm going to Vegas in the men's basketball program where they're at going into the final game of the regular season. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm at Prem Eric Scopel with me as always. And Eric, we are fully in on bas- on football right now, but it's also the conclusion of the regular season for the men's and the women's. The women have have actually started, or the conference tournament has actually started for the women this week. The men, um, they will start next week, and Oregon is going into a game on Saturday night in which, for the first time since 1945, the men have an opportunity to win a conference regular season championship on their home floor because they played maybe, I, I, I feel pretty confident in saying this, and the only hesitancy I have is the quality of opponent that they did it against. But yeah. Oregon beat California 90-56, to and I think this was maybe their best game of the year. And, shocker, Dana Altman coached basketball team starting to play best basketball in the month of March. <laughs> yeah, who saw this coming? Although we should say, like, there was reason to believe that this game could be pretty competitive, in part because sure. – Chris Duarte, we had pretty definitive news that he won't be obviously not playing this week, not playing the Pac-12 tournament. You reported that on the site. Also, some possibility going into this game that Will Richardson might not be available. It sounded like he had an ankle issue. Obviously, he played and played very, very well. Um, you look at the way this all came together. It was a pretty competitive first half until it wasn't, and then suddenly it really wasn't competitive, and then the rest of the game was just an absolute uh, bloodbath. I think offensively, I don't know what else you can ask for from this team. I mean, everybody who scored a basket besides C.J. Walker, shot at least 50% from the field. Um, everybody who made a three-point shot made at least 50% of the three-point attempts. Anthony Mathis hit five of six. Pritchard hit three for three. Pritchard was six of eight from the field. Nobody attempted more than 10 field goal attempts, and they scored 90 points. Uh, that would be something you'd have to go back and look at how many times that happens. But everybody was very, very efficient. What, what stood out offensively from this group? Because with Duarte, obviously now having been, we can say he's been out officially a couple of games, but really offensively he'd been kind of limited for a while. It really does feel like they're starting to kind of find their step, or do you f- feel like this has to do more with the opponent than, than what Oregon is doing? Yeah, well, I mean, Dan Altman said that this was a night where he said, look, that's a really good defensive team, and they play a really slow tempo. We just shot the ball really well. That's yeah. exactly you know, Altman kind of was just, we, ju- we just were on fire, basically, <laughs> is what he said. Um, and I, I think... The, the biggest takeaway for me was just the killer instinct that this team had. I mean, they made their first five shots and nine of their first 12 uh, bef- with 10 minutes to go in the first half. And then they closed the first half strong, making seven straight field goals and going on a 21 to nothing run to really open this thing up. And then after California in the second half got within 15 points with just under 12 minutes to play, Oregon crushed them. They they went on a 32 to 13 run in the final 11 minutes of the game, and it, it was three pointers, it was dunks, it was layups, it was jump shots. 
uh, it was stuff in transition. Um, Oregon shot 70% from the three, which set a Matthew Knight Arena record. They uh, shot 60% from the floor, 68% in the first half from the floor. California had just seven rebounds in the first half. Seven. That's all they had. And you just look at the stats up and down. I think this was their most complete game because they played a suffocating brand of, de- of basketball defensively. I think they forced four or five different shot clock violations in this game. They rebounded the ball really well. California only had nine offensive rebounds. Majority of those came in the second half when Oregon's bench was opened up and guys played. And then offensively, just the connectivity they had of knowing where each other was on the court and executing the cuts correctly. And, you know, they were running really good sets. And I think you have to understand that Cal is not a very good team. Like they, they, they are, they are 13 and seven in conference. The fact that they've won, or overall, the fact that they've won seven games in conference play is just amazing. But the reality is they're not a good basketball team. They don't have the, the, the similar talent that Oregon does. But that being said, Cal has, they, they'd won three of their last four games. They, they have been competitive in a, a majority of the conference this games this season. And this was the largest margin of victory by Oregon since the 2017 season when Oregon wow. stayed by 42. So, and that was the year Oregon went to the final four. And looking at this, this game, that's where I take away from it. It was, this was the most complete game we've seen from Oregon. And they did it against a team that was winners of three of the last four games, two of which against Utah and Colorado. It's actually pretty surprising when you look at the standings. And I know Cal was picked finish last in the Pac-12. They're currently the eighth seed with one game left this season. If they were to beat Oregon State uh, this weekend, they would be the eighth seed in the Pac-12 tournament. And, you know, considering the talent disparity there with a lot of the teams in this conference, that would say a lot. I mean, it is interesting because the way that this has played out is the top of the conference is really tight and the bottom of the conference is really tight. You know, there, there really isn't. I mean, we, we actually guessed this was going to happen. Washington does beat Arizona State at Arizona State last night because, of course. Um, but even the team at the bottom of the conference are able to compete, and I, I do think uh, that says a lot about it. Uh, but a, a couple more things on this game, Matt. Uh, the best game we've seen out of Enfalde Dante in a while, the best game we've probably seen out of Addison Patterson in a while, seemed like they're starting to get some of that bench production back. 100% with Addison Patterson. You can, you, this was his best game in a very long time. He scored 17 points his second game of his career uh, against Boise State, but he fouled out in that game too, so maybe that is devalued just a little bit, but career high in Pac-12 games. This is the second highest points he scored all year. He played in 22 minutes, which was a season high for him as well. And the most important thing is, he scored 13 points on three made field goals. That's good. really good. <laughs> uh, I mean, he got, he made six of seven free throws. This is a guy that, that for the majority of the season has not shot the free throw shot really well. I mean, 56% free throw shooter and against California, he made six of seven. So he showed growth there. He had just one rebound, but he was everywhere defensively and he had a couple foul calls that I, I'm not a, bash the ref type dude, but he had two foul calls that were called against him that straight up were just him stealing the ball. And the ref, the officiating just missed it. And so I'm not too worried about the fact that he had three fouls. He had two steals. He had a block. It felt like he altered a couple more shots. Um, 
this is a game in which a, a team that they need Patterson to give you something. And he's starting to do that because just look at what's happened since the Colorado game at home. He played 12 minutes in that Colorado game. He scored six points. He had three steals against Utah. He had 10 points, two blocks, three rebounds against ASU. He had eight points and six rebounds. He did not play against Arizona because he was, <clears throat> excuse me, suspended for a team violation, but against Oregon state, three assists, one rebound, four points. And now again, against California, he has 13 point performance with two steals. He's, I mean, Three out of the last four games, he scored eight or more points, and he's he's rebounding the ball well. He's playing defensively well. Um, you get this type of production from him the rest of the season. Oregon's in a really good spot now. For Infalli Dante, this was just getting him out on the court, and you you kind of were a little concerned in the first half because he picked up two fouls playing just two minutes. And it was kind of one of those deals of, oh great, what, here we go again, why is he not gonna, you know, he's not gonna play a ton, this is an opportunity for him to actually play. Right. But he, he stayed out of foul trouble in the second half, he played 11 minutes, he had 6 points, 3 rebounds, 1 assist, 1 block, and just, he played 11 minutes. And that's, I mean, he played more than twice as many minutes as he did against Oregon State. I imagine if, if it's possible, we could see him go to, to 15 or 16 minutes against Stanford just to kind of get him more reps. And I think that's the key here for, for Oregon is getting him reps because it's evident he is bigger than everybody else. He's tall. He's, he's longer than everybody else. And when he gets the ball down low, it's almost like a walking bucket because teams have a hard, have a hard time keeping him away from the rim. All right, Matt, let's set this up here going into. I guess tomorrow's game. It's crazy how this is all snuck up here. Or, or where is Oregon at? They're 12 and five. UCLA is also 12 and five in terms of the conference championship. Explain where they're at there. And then in terms of maybe Pac-12 seeding, um, it is crazy to look at, and it's probably really unpredictable. But uh, you have an idea of, of what the opening draws might look like theoretically. Um, looking at at, at the, let's, are we assuming here that Oregon wins the? I, I missed it. Are we assuming that Oregon wins the? Uh, game against Stanford let's go ahead and well that, that, I guess that's well if Oregon does win the game against Stanford they are the top seed in Pac-12 champs um so yeah let's assume that what, what is the kind of kind of what does Vegas potentially look like next week if if that is the scenario that plays out I know it is hard because I'm looking at the standings going boy everyone is either 10 and 7 or 6 right. and 11 it feels well, like but <laughs> Oregon's gonna play Oregon's gonna play more than likely the winner between Cal and Oregon State that's the 8-9 game um I think if you're Oregon, you want Cal because the Beavers have Trace Tinkle, who's the all-time leading scorer at OSU. They have a shot blocker in, in, in Tyler Kelly, who's one of the best statistically in the country this season. And then I think Ethan Thompson has done a really good job defensively against Peyton Pritchard in, in his career against Oregon. So if if you're rooting for one of those two teams, you want Cal to, to emerge out of that. Or maybe you want a way to, to see a Oregon State maybe get a seven seed. Um, but from there, it, it's literally, this is what's going to make the final weekend on Saturday so just interesting and must watch TV because every other team essentially above California and Oregon State and maybe even Utah and Washington State, maybe everybody but Washington could be interchangeable. Yeah. That's what um, I'm at. Oregon is, Oregon and UCLA have secured 
the fact that they are getting a bye. And that's basically all we know that at, at up top. Oregon or UCLA will be one or or will be two. One of those two. It's, it's those two are it because ASU lost. They can't catch anybody else. Colorado, USC, Arizona, Arizona State are all 10 and 7. They're all two games back with one game to play. So they're all fighting for that bye. I mean, the, the combinations are almost endless. If you're Oregon, you want to avoid a 5-4. Let's say Oregon gets the one seed and they advance to the to the semifinals. You want to avoid seeing Arizona and I think Colorado in that 5-4 game that will be played on Thursday because I think those are the two teams that are going to give Oregon the most trouble in in Las Vegas. So you want to see them in the championship game. So you want Colorado and Arizona to be a a 2, 3, 6, or a 7 seed. You do not want them to be a 5 or a 4 or an 8. Those are the two teams, for me, I want to avoid if I'm Oregon until as late as possible. I don't want to linger on this too long, but just – I think it's really notable how close the conference is right now. I mean, you look at the standings here, and we've got one game left. And like like you said, like there's really no one's locked into any spot besides Oregon. You say are locked into the first or second spot, and Washington's locked into last place. Everybody else is is almost too close to call. Can you remember your time covering or even just following this this conference? A time when you go into the the final Saturday and, and Sunday games of, of the conference season, and this is what it looks like. I, I can't think of it. Uh, ever being so close. I mean, there really just doesn't even seem like there's a distinguishable difference from almost anybody in the conference this season. No, it, it's pretty unique um, seeing how tight race this 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 run is and, and all the inter- interchangeable parts that we could see and how one loss could literally drop a, a, a team like, let's just say, Colorado. They play Utah on Saturday and what happens if if UCLA beats uh, loses to USC and Arizona beats Washington and Arizona State they beat Washington State and Stanford they're going to let's say they lose to Oregon Colorado could go from third place in the conference at 10 and 7 if they lose to Utah to potentially like 8 like <laughs> That's just insane. Like, because Utah would be seven and eleven, Colorado would be uh, not seven. They would they wouldn't get passed by Utah, but USC's ahead of them, Arizona's ahead of them, Arizona State's ahead of them, and now all of a sudden they're 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 in the seventh spot. I mean that that's just mind boggling. And if Stanford upsets Oregon and Colorado loses, they go to the eighth spot. And so it, it, it. that right there, I and mean, it's the same case for not just Colorado, but for a majority of these teams because so few of games separate everybody, and just one loss doesn't just drop you one one seed in the tournament. It it could drop you three or four, and that's going to create just I think some very competitive games in the last game of the season or the last day of the season, just because of everyone wants that buy, everyone doesn't want to. You know they don't want to have to play Oregon or have to play UCLA the first round of the tournament if if they can avoid it. All right, now let's wrap this up real quick. I I think we need to talk about the women. They're playing right now, depending on when you listen to this podcast. So we don't know the result. I, I think 
If they lose, we'll probably do an emergency podcast. <laughs> like, yes, yes, we will. If they, yeah, you're so right. if, if you don't see that, you can understand that they won the game. But just overall feeling of where this program is at going into Vegas, um, I teams that win at a high level, they find motivation in any little thing. And I, I heard something from Kelly Graves. I think he was on a radio show in Eugene, in, in the state of Oregon this week. And he said that his team's kind of motivated because they went to Vegas last year and didn't win the conference championship. And that's part of the unfinished business. So like, is that, is, is how big of a factor is that for this team for motivation wise? I feel, I feel like that part gets overlooked sometimes. I think people think that because Oregon's been so dominant that they've just always won the conference tournament, but that was not the case last year. Stanford upset them in the championship game, and that was a game where Oregon was really worn down. And I do think they want to have that conference championship. And we should note that it's not a lock by any means that Oregon would face Stanford in the conference championship. They're the three seed this year. They have to play Oregon State, who looked really, really good um, Thursday night, beating Arizona, or sorry, Washington State by about 30 points. Um, and UCLA is the two seed. So, uh, you know, I think Oregon probably wants to beat Stanford in that conference championship game to have a little bit of revenge from what happened a year ago. But I do think that has to be something that's at the forefront of their minds going into this. And really, really, if you're Oregon, the motivation here is just to keep winning and to continue this role. And they've won 16 games in a row. Most of those games haven't been competitive. I don't think they're going to be challenged at too high of a level until maybe a conference championship game. Maybe Arizona, who they'll probably play on Saturday, who did play Oregon really tough down in Tucson. Maybe they'll, maybe that'll be a game where it goes competitive into the fourth quarter. I, I don't necessarily expect that, but I think this is a team that's, that's very, very clearly playing its best basketball right now. We talked about the men starting to kind of round into form. The women have been playing their best basketball for a while now, and they've continued that, and they've been so consistent. Really, you think about this run, there haven't been, there hasn't been that game yet where they just don't show up, and I think that speaks a lot to what Sabrina Ionescu has meant for this program, that senior core, um, with her and Ruthie Hebert and Mignon Moore. I think you can probably include Satchi Sabli in that now, and probably even Aaron Boley as a junior. I think Kelly Graves deserves a ton of credit, and I, I fully expect you're going to see a motivated, focused ball club this week down Las Vegas, and I'm not going to be stunned at all if they play three games and they win all three games by 20 or 30 points, and you go into the NCAA tournament going like, yep, this team is ready, and and you just add even a little bit more confidence to where they're at. Um, let's just run through the schedule this week. They're going to play um, Friday at 2 p.m. You'll probably be listening to that. Let's ex- let's just move them past that game because they're probably going to beat Utah, who beat Washington on, on Thursday. They would then play at 6 p.m. on Saturday and then 5 p.m. in the championship game on Sunday. That Sunday game would be played on ESPN, too. So that's the schedule. That's the way it plays out. I think if I'm being objective, I, I don't really expect Oregon to – lose any of these games, certainly, and I think they're probably going to win these games by a decent margin, but who knows? Things can get wild in the Pac-12 tournament, and, and you're, like you said, I don't We've think... We've already seen the 12th knock off the five. I was going to say, yeah, we saw Cal, and Cal, we talked about how Cal had been playing a little better on the men's side. The Cal women were 2-15 and 15 going into the last game of, of Pac-12 play against Arizona. They upset the, the Wildcats last week. They then come out and they beat Arizona State, who was also ranked in the opening round. They'll have Arizona, which is that, that game will be done by the time you listen to this because it's about to tip off right now. Um, that's just bizarre, and maybe the conference tournament ends up being wacky, and you look up here and Oregon drops a game, but I'm not going into this expecting that's that's a, a likely um, result of this weekend. Okay, let's, real quick, what would it take to knock them off? Like, 
you're 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 pretty confident. I think it's justifiably so. I'm very confident they that they win this thing three straight. But what would it take for them to lose? I think it would take a really, really good shooting performance or offensive performance from whoever they play. Um, a team like Oregon State, who they wouldn't play until the championship game, if Oregon State gets really hot, and they were shooting the crap out of the ball on, on Thursday against Washington State, um, if they can get hot and, and continue to hit those shots, that could be a game-changer. I've always contended that the type of teams that really challenge Oregon are the ones with really athletic, aggressive uh, backcourt players. I look at Arizona and UCLA as the two teams that, that really have that. Um, obviously, Ari McDonald at Arizona was the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. I think that w- that's a matchup that's always tough, even though they really handed it to the Wildcats the last time they played um, up in Eugene. And then UCLA, the same thing with Dean and Michaela Anyanwari and, and a couple of those other guards they have there. I think uh, Chrisma Osborne was one of the best freshmen in the league, another really athletic, aggressive guard. Those type of teams could potentially pose challenges, but I will also say that Oregon has played – I mean, that's the thing about this is you look at these teams that that are on the, the schedule here. There's not a team on this that Oregon hasn't just completely dominated this season. I know UCLA and Oregon State were the results look closer. Those are like 12 to 15 point games, but those are also games where going into the fourth quarter, Oregon was up by a really, you know 20 to 30 point margin, and the game kind of got a little more close than maybe it should have. Um, but I, I'm not expecting these games to maybe be that close. But I think if you could run into a team that gets really hot from three point range or a team that really can force, uh, maybe make Sabrina's life difficult, or maybe make Mignon Moore's life difficult, and really hound those two and make it hard for them to, to get into offense. That's the way I think you beat this team. I don't know if there's a team in this conference. Frankly, I don't know how many teams in the country are really capable of doing that, though. Lots to watch for over the weekend. Hope you guys enjoy it. We'll have coverage of spring football. We'll have coverage of the women's tournament in Vegas. We'll also have coverage of Senior Day, and if Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship or not, from the men's side, uh, over the weekend on DuckTerritory.com. Make sure you guys go to that website. Check it out. We've also got the promo. 50% off an annual subscription for your membership. Take advantage of that today. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Bream, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.